You're listening to a Henley Intelligence Conversation. So welcome to Henley Intelligence. It's the Henley Business School Africa podcast stroke radio show that we do where we talk to really interesting people in a very open way and try to understand what's driven them and what really what lessons have they got for us? What can they give us? What provocations can they give us so that we can live better, more fruitful, good lives in the context we do in business or organizations and in life in general. And today I have the absolute privilege of welcoming Dr. Mampila Rampella, who is an icon in South Africa. It's, I'm not going to flatter her. She's staring at me in the eyes and she'll <laughs> scare me if I say too much, but has done extraordinary things from her early years as a, as a medical doctor. She's an academic, a businesswoman, an intellectual, a leader, an activist. She was a partner of the legendary Steve Biko, with whom she had two children. I knew her as my former boss, as a vice chancellor at the University of Cape Town. Although I was in a lowly position, she took the time one day to write me a letter saying, well done. And I still kept it to this day. I shall frame it after this. Thank you for that. And also one time managing director of the World Bank, one time politician, and general conscience activists, thinker, provocateurs in South Africa. So welcome. After that very long introduction, welcome, Dr. Mampela Rampela. Thank you very much, John, for inviting me here. I have a, a partiality towards institutions of higher learning and towards institutions of learning in general because mm -hmm. I'm a product of two teachers. So for me, education is simply something that ought to be available in abundance for every child, every adult, every person, because that's how our inner worlds can unfold. That's so true, isn't it? And, and we've made choices in South Africa since 1994, interesting choices around education. And you would know a lot more than I would about why we've done or we've made those choices. What do you think we should be doing with education in South Africa now, very straight down the line, what's, what's our agenda we should be following now in education? The first thing is to recognize that you can never succeed as a nation by borrowing from other mm. people. The first mistake we made was to borrow outcomes-based education from failed models in New Zealand, in Canada, everywhere else where they tried it, it failed. In South Africa at that time, there were many, many civil society initiatives that modeled what could be done in education mm. differently. Second, we borrowed also the uh, sectoral uh, authority training, I mean, sectoral training authorities, which again have failed everywhere they've been tried. The tried and tested model for training right up to being a pilot, is on-the-job training. Why should people who used to be failed teachers or professors at university go and sit and write some courses for mechanics or for carpenters? Right. It doesn't make sense. Mm. So the lesson we need to take from our missteps post-1994 is that we will only succeed if we trust our own heritage. And Africa 
is the mother, not just of humanity, is the mother of science, technology, and education. And education in Africa is integrated with everyday life. Whether you're going back to the pharaohs mm -hmm. or you're going back to the... Uh, the astrologists or the astronomers or the cosmologists or the architects, they all learned their trade and it was their way of life. So livelihoods and learning and, and, and education have a shared space and shared future. If we do that, we will start by making sure that our education system in South Africa is based on African culture, language, history. So that was a quite a, let's imagine I'm, I'm a listener sitting in this kind of British world or somewhere in America, and you've made this statement that Africa is a source of science and there is an African cultural way to educate. Where, where do you, that, that is real to you, totally real. To them, they haven't an, an insight into why you might be able to say that. Why, why do you say that? Because it is actually documented, and they know. Mm. Every known or knowledgeable archaeologist, historian, scientist, cosmologist, anywhere in the mm. world, if they are honest, they will acknowledge that British museums, European museums are full of the knowledge base in Africa. Mm. The Library of Alexander, how did it happen? How could you have a continent which had no knowledge base having the first library in the world? Right? And the one in Mali. That's, uh, and the one in Mali. Yes. And the first university that the so-called Moors who lived in, mm. who, who colonized Spain, also established. So I'm not talking folklore. I'm talking real ancient history. Mm. And people who are educated, I'm not talking about people who have gone to school, educated people know this. But if they want to shortcut that, they can read books by the polymath, Sheikh Anta Dio, a Senegalese man who did real painstaking research to pull this all together. All right, so I'm going to buy that book. And there are I books. Books. It's a series of books that uh -huh. is written on the subject. Right. Well, I'll buy the series then. Thank, Thank you very you. much. <laughs> so it's it's curious how we how we think about education here. There was there was that wonderful TED talk by Sir Ken Robinson. I don't know if you heard of it. He talked about we've inherited this industrial education model that was even it's it's a form of colonization, if you like, uh, an education colonization that's not just colonized you know, places around the world, but also remains a form of colonization in Britain and, and other countries as well, a, a model of education that is increasingly suspect and challenged. Um, do you see it in that way? Do you see it as a sort of colonization of education, or do you see it in a different way? Well, I think what we have to remember is education and industrial development and, and many aspects of life became part of the colonial conquest, mm. part of the colonial project. And colonialism didn't just colonize the like of us in Africa. It also colonized across yeah. the globe. But 
what we know about colonial systems, authoritarian systems, is that the people who are dominating are themselves being damaged mm. because they have to lie. For example, this history of this ancient history of Africa had to be hidden away so that they could say Africa, the dark continent. Mm. Here in South Africa, the Mapungu were golden rhino was hidden when it was discovered in the Venda area, which was evidence that there was an empire there that not only mined, but they actually knew how to smelt gold and to make mm. ornaments and objects out of it. But if you have said that you are the bringer of knowledge, of everything. And of truth, of and of truth, religion, and, and of God. Right? You yeah. have to hide that away. Mm. In the process, your lying undermines your own integrity mm. and that of the people around you and that of your culture. Well, because you are a, you are, you've got a, a culture of lying. Um, I actually was in Malaya, as it was then. I remember the handover of power. My father was a senior military officer in Royal Air Force. I remember those ceremonies. Little did I know um, and I, uh, how, how things would change. It's extraordinarily true that, if, that in that world of the colonial world, you are blinded. There is so much that you just have no idea exists. And it's almost with an increasing sense of embarrassment and somehow sometimes even shame one gets to understand that there's there's much much to the world that we haven't been exposed to so i'm curious about this because steve biko who you obviously knew so well talked about the colonization of the mind and i've always wanted to ask you in your words what that meant and and how is that relevant today because i believe it probably still is yes it's very relevant today because it's 24 years into democracy mm. We still have a public school system mm. that doesn't teach the history, African history I'm talking mm. about. African languages are dying on our watch. And poor people are being treated in the same way that they were treated under apartheid yes. as subjects. Mm. There's talk of we've built three million plus houses you go into those things and tell me if that's a house when we were activists in the 60s and 70s we used to talk about the old four-room township house as a mesh box mm. this is half a mesh box and those houses in the past they were at least on large enough plots that you could expand your house and the the frame of the house was strong enough for you to extend it is not the case now. So the post-apartheid government has taken the mindset of the colonial regime that says, for poor people, this is good enough. And it is post-apartheid that we are told that our children can't do math, they can't do science, so 30%, 40% is good enough. That's the colonization of the mind. I was fortunate that my generation stood and thought long enough to say, how can we call ourselves non-whites, non-Europeans? This is only in the 
early 70s, late 60s. Defining your existence by an otherness of whiteness yeah. or Europeanness yeah. as some, somehow the gold standard. So Absurd. this is the point. So mm. the colonization of the mind starts with you believing that you are other mm. and starting to look at the colonizer as a standard. And then your whole life is spent trying to emulate the standard. And you can never be an Englishman or a Dutchman or whatever. Hmm. And so there's no success in the future for you. So the beauty of the black consciousness movement was borrowing from the polar friars of this day, the black power movement uh, in, in the United States, to say what is important is that we must name ourselves. And we must return to the source of our being. We are Africans. We are the original people. We are products of the mm. cradle of humanity. There has to be something special that made the evolution of humanity possible from this continent. Yeah, for sure. Right? Mm. And if we understand that, we will know that we have a very rich heritage. Mm. And suddenly, you lift your shoulders. Suddenly you look John in the eye and say, John, I disagree with you. <laughs> or Excellent. I say, John, I think there is another way of doing things. Mm. So the colonization of the mind is the most dangerous. The physical chains you can break. We mm. did that in mm. 1994. But the colonization of the mind remains generation to generation unless you, we do what we said in the preamble of our constitution, mm. we will heal the wounds of our ugly past. And that healing is the process of decolonizing our mind, mm. the process of acknowledging that we were humiliated, that we actually embrace being inferior. As they were saying, and there must be a that must be really enormously hard to do psychologically, because admitting that that one has absorbed this a sense of inferiority, and in a sense almost colluded with that, must be difficult and almost a shameful thing to some people. How do you how do you accept that we were that frail almost to do that, or that malleable, or that? that gullible to, to accept that happened. That's a hard thing to take. I mean, I had a, a similar experience when I eventually realized that in spite of decades of protestation to the opposite, that actually I was racist and I didn't understand how I could be. And it wasn't until I made really good friends in Ghana and I, and I was meeting friends, I realized that deep down I'd been conditioned to the extent where I, I mm -hmm. had judgments about black people or class or whatever that gave me a sense of superiority, mm. a baseless superiority. Mm. And that was embarrassing and and frightening, actually, because how could that happen to me? And so it almost is this is this in reverse. If you take on that this has happened to you as a as a black person under under the colonization, you've absorbed that inferiority. It's it's a it takes a lot of courage to 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 see that and then grow through it. Am I right or am I guessing that? Well idea? you're right in a way. Yeah. But it's actually much easier for me mm. as the recipient of humiliation to acknowledge that mm. I have been humiliated. I have been made to believe that I'm inferior. And now 
the future can only be brighter. <laughs> that's, that's the because you yeah. know what? I'm so now wonderful. Wonderful. on my own. I'm yeah. standing on my own two feet. Yeah. And I'm proud to be who I am. And I am inviting everybody else to do the same. The big, bigger embarrassment is on the side of the humiliator. I can because totally agree with that. Yeah. the justification mm. for the economic exploitation of Africans, their enslavement, is that they were lesser human beings. Mm, exactly. Now you've got to face up to the fact that actually, as you were saying that, you knew you were lying. Because, mm. I mean, you've passed the pyramids. How do these lesser human beings build those pyramids? You, you've, you know, the Library of Alexandria, every evidence is there that you are dealing here with a very old civilization. But you decide to bury the, all of that in lies. So there is a lot of healing that needs to happen. Yeah. And we need to acknowledge the inferiority, the superiority complexes that got us yeah. to where we were. But that 1994 didn't end that. 1994 opened the door for us to end that. And the first step is the issue of healing. Because to heal, I must take your hand and say, John, let's sit down. We really need to talk about how we are going to live together now that the pretense of inferiority and superiority is over. It was done, we know, so that you can justify exploitation. But now we have to build this country together. Mm. We are now where we are. We need together to learn to live the shared values that we have embraced in our constitution. Human rights values are exactly the values that ancient Africa lived by, the Ubuntu concept, which is not a legal concept. It's a, a spiritual concept that I can't just smash your head and walk away and not worry about what happens to you. Or... If you do something to me and you come back to me and say, you know, my pal, I'm very sorry. I, I, it was in a fit of anger and so on. I've no, I mean, I've got no option but to say, John, I forgive you, yeah. but we need to learn the lesson that we don't act on the spur of the moment. So taking that and just putting it in modern day context, and thank you for those insights. Is there a transition to be made on both sides among the victims of apartheid or victims of colonialism, if you want to call them that, to step up and see themselves as as whole and face the demon that they may be perhaps avoiding as that they took on this mantle that you've talked about. And is the other side that those people who are victims in their own way, the, the colonizer or the beneficiaries of apartheid to understand that in some sense, Whatever they say, they're really colluded in this. And consciously or unconsciously, they did. And that we are of equal capability and that there's a painful transition on both sides to go through. So is it that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Right. I mean, this, and the, the issue is not really uh, now is a moment of reckoning. You, you start from a safer space. What kind of South Africa do you want to live in? Yeah. 
do we want our children to grow up into? Thank you. Yeah. Now, we painted a very glorious imagery of this South Africa want to live in, this justice for all equal rights and respect for everybody. To get there, we need to pass. The first thing mm. is the acknowledgement that we need to heal. And that healing is not about accusing and uh, groveling, but it is acknowledgement. Mm. You know, stuff happened, and let's acknowledge it. But then we need to act to put it right. Because we have a future. And because is, we have a future. Yeah. Now, there's no way we can ever get out of the bind we are in now the highest level of inequality in the world and growing. Mm. Our economy is in the doldrums. Every time they are revising downwards. Why? Because a society that is wounded, which is ours, both the perpetrators and the victims are deeply wounded. We live in fear of one another. There mm. is no level of trust sufficient to make us a high productivity society. When we have a meeting, I'm wondering, gosh, what is this agenda? Mm. Because there's no common ground. Mm. And we have a wonderful opportunity, in my view, to dream together about what kind of reimagined South Africa, which is the reason why two years ago I founded this reimagined South Africa with uh, George Lendicue, because it became very clear to me after the elections of 2014 where I tried to establish an alternative party called Ahang SA, which means let us build South Africa. People complain about corruption, lack of accountability, poor public services, but then they are not ready to shape an alternative. Mm -hmm. So Reimagine SA is there to say, this is not a fixer of the problems we have. This is an invitation for all of us to redream the South Africa we want to live in. And having done that, we need to go back to that preamble of the Constitution and say, how much healing have we done? And you'll find that zilch, because there is no public platform for healing. The TRC, which we tell the whole world how we were truth and reconciliation, it was actually not set up for healing. It was set up to give amnesty to the generals mm. who are refusing to sign up for the political settlement unless they had a vehicle to for them to get amnesty for the deeds they had to commit under instruction from the old system. So the idea was that the political settlement which got us to 1994 was to be complemented by an emotional settlement. This is the healing. This is the sharing of a value system that when we talk about our children, we're really talking about all South Africa's children. All South Africa, That we stop children, yeah. talking in color-coded terms. Exactly. We are the only African country today 
That talks about white, black. Why? So that's a very interesting point. So the TRC didn't do healing. It did amnesty. Amnesty. It's been a number of years, 24-odd years, since things have changed. And many people would say, oh, let's put all that behind us. You know, that's what people have been saying for years. What you're saying is really quite the opposite. Let's not put it behind us. Let's create a positive engagement, see ourselves as equal, understand our children are growing together in a society we want all our children to thrive in, all of them. And it's, it cannot be to do with trivialities like skin color. A lot of cultural differences, but it's a damage from the past we've just got to face up to. And that's going to be painful on both sides, not violently painful, but almost spiritually, almost deeply personally painful, realizing how one has been, in a sense, a victim of these approaches or mindsets unconsciously quite often. And we have to go through that path. Is that the sort of thing you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. The point is, we've been avoiding this. Mm -hmm. We literally signed the constitution and put it away. So what can we do? What well, can we do now to, to what help we can this transition? Do is exactly what we are doing as Reimagine SA. Mm -hmm. And fortunately for us, the South African Council of Churches is led by a young bishop, not so young, but he is looking young, Bishop Malusi Mpumlwana. He has convened the National Convention of South Africa process to do exactly what we are talking about. Reimagine, redesign, and reorganize South Africa. So Reimagine SA has inspired these kind of engagements. And the point about it is that you don't have to have a movement in political terms. In your own home, you are saying you're embarrassed to learn that you have been racist in the past. Yes. Have you talked to your sons about that? Have yes. you talked to your... So in the home, yeah, we need to have those conversations. Mm. Instead of those people out there, that corrupt Zuma mm. there, let's just also say, hey, we are also needing to acknowledge mm. our role in creating the environment where people who came after 1994 into leadership positions, some of them felt it's our turn to eat because... We come from a very exploitative system, mm. the colonial system, the apartheid system, where when you are in authority, you are the boss. So that's the first thing. The second thing we need to do is to make sure that in every one of our schools, because we have got life orientation in our school system, if we engage young people from the earlier grades, by the time they graduate as high school graduates, they will be informed, critical thinking, comfortable, confident citizens. We also need to take the workspace. Our workspaces are very toxic. Mm. And we know that the CEOs of this country, 70% of them are white and male. This can be an accident. Mm. Is because there is a mindset that says leadership, strength, knowledge, power belongs to this profile. So the corporate sector really needs to engage this process of reimagining and redreaming South Africa because 
growth rates of one point something are not going to make for a thriving business environment. If we want a thriving business environment, we've got to heal and open up and unleash the talents of every South African. Then we'll start seeing the growth rates that, that we are now seeing places like Ethiopia that are also getting mm. their eggs together. The Kenyans that are yeah. also getting their eggs. We are the lowest performer on the continent. And we need to ask why. So I'd like to home in a bit on that reimagine South Africa, that movement, because you say we, we don't have to make a movement, but maybe we do in a sense. Isn't there an internal movement we have to get? Don't we have to be activists of a different sort? We, we think of activists as this sort of confrontational warriors, violence in a sense. Mm. Well, not really, but it's a warrior, warrior mm. ethos. Mm. Surely we have to be activists in a different way now. This isn't going to happen passively. This isn't going to happen quietly just because we wish it to be so. There are forces arranged against these movements. Isn't this a time when people have to step up in some way and have to show courage in some ways? Maybe not, obviously not by creating civil conflict, etc. But there has to be a confrontation of sort that we hold through and we have the courage to, to stay within, to create a transition. It's not going to be wish Mm. fulfillment. Hope mm. isn't a strategy. We mm. have to do something active. What are those active things do you think that we, I, others need to step up and into now? Selflessly is necessary, probably. Yeah. You know, what, what should we do? Perhaps I shouldn't have said we don't need a movement, but what I meant is that we don't need a formal Formal movement, movement. Yeah. But what we need is a consciousness movement. Right. We need to be conscious of how we have gotten to where we are 24 years after democracy. And consciously go back to the commitments we made in the preamble of our constitution. We said, we the people adopt this constitution so as to heal the divisions of the past, establish the social justice system where there is equality, where there's human dignity, and there's respect for everybody. We also said that we want to build a society where the quality of life is such that everybody's talent is going to be unleashed. Now, that's an action plan right there, which we agreed to in 1996. So the, the good news is that we don't have a blank slate, but we have to travel in our imagination and imagine what kind of South Africa could we have if we did those things that we said we would do. And the good news is also that some people are doing this in small spaces. Mm. Like here at Henley today, we have created 45, 50 young people, uh, it's a network of those young people who are really asking these questions. How do we move to be more conscious at the personal level, at the level of family, at the level of the workplace where we are, the level of the communities where we live, and therefore become more engaged citizens. So maybe one of the things about consciousness, getting a higher consciousness, is not some spiritual or ethereal sense of quasi kind of meditative Buddhist transcendence. Maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's about maybe it's about really committing to to getting things done, to understanding the consequence of things. Maybe it's to understand causality. If you 
if, if I'm in charge of a very large contract and somebody comes to me and, or I have the money and somebody comes to me and I say, give me 10% or 15% and you can have it. The price goes up 15%. So of that taxpayer's money, already 15% is eroded. I then give that to somebody who's not qualified, who's not trained, who's not been through the process of being able to deliver good service. They go over budget, over time under quality. So this healthcare, the road, the school, whatever it is that's delivered is 30, 40% worse off. So that budget from the taxpayers has shrunk now by half. And so if people understand the causality and how not confronting corruption or not stopping corporates from making collusive decisions for the sake of short-term benefit, surely that's going to be a starting point. So if I make this action, if I turn a blind eye, if I'm living in denial, there are very real consequences to kids. And those kids live, your kids live with my kids and the other people's kids. And this is a future we're creating. So understanding causality, cause and effect, isn't that something we need to starkly describe rather than trying to wrap it up in rather abstract concepts? Don't we need to see how people really suffer and the, and the people who do suffer are the poorest? Well, I have news for you. There is a prior step. Uh-huh. Because we know from neuroscientists that people who have been humiliated, mm. there is something called multi-generational trauma. Yes. They may not have lived through that, but mm. they know it in the blood. Mm. Now, when such people get into positions of authority and power, all that rings in the head. Is, is now my turn. My turn to eat. Yeah. Now, you see the Africans, after being humiliated by the Brits, when they got into power, they did exactly the yeah. same. Now we have our own uh, post-1994 government doing the same thing. Unless we sit down and acknowledge the trauma, the multi-generational trauma, and it is a spiritual journey. I alluded at the beginning of this conversation to Mr. Mandela spending 27 years in jail. Mm. He emerged saying, I'm not a saint. I'm a sinner who's prepared each time to improve. And we as South Africans are very unconscious of the need for us to travel inside us Mm. to deal with the spiritual wounds we have inflicted on ourselves, both those who are humiliated and the humiliators, which con- which is the reason why we are perpetuating this color coding, because mm-hmm. that's the only way we, th- we know how to think. Now, there is an excuse by our government that we need the color coding so that we can put right what went wrong. The fact is, it was Einstein who told us, you cannot correct a problem by using the same methods or the same the same environment that created mm. it, the same logic that created the problem. Color coding was brought in to justify exploitation. We are the majority as Africans in this country. Mm. There's no need for us to color code anything. No, of course not. We the people. That level. And when I say we Africans, all of us are Africans. What we should have done in 1994 
is to make sure that having achieved our political settlement, we have these conversations. Mm. And Africa is known for conversations. The idea of Lohota, Bosberat, and so on, it's all about when there is a problem, sit around a circle, eye contact, and you will find a solution to the problem. So hear every perspective of the problem. Every perspective hear of the problem. Hear it, because <laughs> problems are complex. They're multidimensional, yeah. multi-perspective. Mm-hmm. And then you can see, in a sense, yeah. where to intervene, how to, ch- how to make a change. Yeah, but the important thing is that having sat around the table, you emerge with an action plan that everybody mm. agrees to. You could argue that the 1996 constitution was an action plan, but it was agreed at so many levels. Now we need to take that constitution into families, into churches, into the workplace, into the street committees, so that people who assume positions of leadership are not doing this as a service to their parties, but as a service to the people. But we, because we haven't done this, this healing process, we are having a reproduction of the same authoritarian system within what is theoretically a constitutional democracy, which is why our politics has now been reduced to court cases, because we can't have conversations. I agree, disagree, and then if we can't find one another around to the courts. But I get this is essential, and, and I'm persuaded very much by Dr. Ampelli that this is needed. And yet there are many people who have found niches or refuges or opportunities which allows them not to engage with this. In fact, they've got a lot to lose if they do. However, we've all got a lot more to lose if we don't. So there is an element of ruthlessness or strength required to push this through. Conversations are not always going to be easy. It's not going to be easy for people to accept that when they were two or three years old, they were conditioned so deeply they became racist or sexist Mm. or insignificant in some sense in their Mm. own thinking or whatever it was they became. This this happened to them before Mm. they could protect themselves. Mm. We've got to get to a point, haven't we, where we start talking about those things and people aren't willingly going to get there. How are we going to create a compelling reason a drive, a mass of people who are going to get these conversations going and get over the fear of confrontation or the fear of exposure that all these things will will provide. We need to create some alternative that, as you're doing, that imagines and shows this future South Africa, but also shows a pathway from here to there that people can walk. Leadership matters. Hmm. And it starts with each one of us in our homes are leaders. Mm. But it also means that we need a strong leader in government. And I'm hoping that Mr. Ramaphosa will rise to that occasion. But we dare not do what we did to Madiba. Expect that Ramaphosa is going to be the Messiah. No. Mm. He has to be there with a mandate from us, which says we the people want to live in South Africa that so many people died fighting for. And we need to have that healing, and that has to be built into the school curriculum. We have life orientation. 
doesn't have to change anything much, that. We also need to change our curriculum to make sure that African history is taught, African languages are not allowed to die, and African culture is not for tourists, but for us, to sustain our spirit. Mm. The churches, you know, the South African Council of Churches represent something like 20 million people Mm. in South Africa. It's almost half the population. So if we also get leadership in the faith-based communities, if they, on Sunday, instead of preaching about hell, they preach about humanity and what it takes to build healed families, healed communities, and support young people to become that which they need to become. CEOs of companies, it's a real scandal that instead of them being the innovators, they are in on the looting of resources, not just from the shareholders, but also from the state, as we have seen with Steinhoff. And so we must challenge the corporate sector to rise to its leadership responsibility so that the corporate environment must be an environment which nurtures this South Africanness that nurtures the 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 return to the source of our heritage and the riches that we'll get from there and to build the trust that is necessary for productivity mm-hmm. in our workspaces. Our economy is in the doldrums because we don't have a shared view of where we're going. So energies are paralyzed by this conflict. Absolutely. Right? Deep absolutely. down, you're saying. Absolutely. And if we do that, I have seen, and you have seen, when young people come together, mm. fired up by a need for justice on whether it's fees, whether it's symbolic monuments, it happens. We don't want destruction. We want them to proudly lead the process of change from an informed point of view. And I think that people like you heading these wonderful business schools need to build into your business school curriculum this way of looking at the world that says if we promote the values of human dignity, respect, you actually are better able to build sustainable prosperity. So I was going to ask you that. You know, I'm, I'm a dean of, of this business school. It's an international one. There are many other deans, vice chancellors, and other educational leaders in South Africa. So I'm your student now. Okay. What's your provocative challenge? How must I step up? How must I, I grab the nettle? have the courage to do the thing that's necessary for South Africa and all our children now. What What's my mandate in your eyes, Dr. Mandela? You spoke about Steve Biko. One of the sayings that is recorded in his What I Like is that Africa is yet to give the world the greatest gift of all. Yes, we are the cradle of humanity. Yes, we have done wonderful things, but one thing that Africa can give the world is a more humane face. Now you, as a dean of an international business school based here on the continent, 
you can distinguish yourself by being a business school that graduates corporates and business and entrepreneurial leaders who really understand this concept and who are able to lead in a way that enable people to come together around shared values mm. and to work in organizations where they'll give their all because they feel invested in this. And, 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 and this is the, 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 the secret of the uh, corporates or the, 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 um, the solidarity that you find in uh, corporations and somehow the Japanese got some of it, but there's too much authoritarianism. But if you take away the authoritarianism, the, the idea of being invested in the place where you work because its values resonate with yours. And when you go off, you, you go off as a better person because you work at a place X or Y. But place X and Y appreciate and celebrate the diverse talents, diverse, the value add that you bring. Mm. So I believe that the kind of spiritual consciousness movement that we need in this country is one that will add value to what you are doing. So we are not asking you to become part of Reimagine Essay. But if you appreciate the value add of a business school that helps its staff, its graduates, to reimagine mm -hmm. their environments, mm -hmm. you are having students from all over Africa. The whole continent needs to reimagine itself. And this is the youngest continent. So from a business point of view, if you really want to turn around this global economy that has got too many swings and runabouts, you have to pay attention to this issue of the, the human face. Because when we engage in businesses from the point of view of making sure that what we do adds in a sustainable way, to the prosperity and the sustainability of the, the ecosystem, including the people we work with, we've, we have, we've got a, a chance to slow down the slide into the unsustainability of planet Earth because of our acts. And that's, that's a, a huge uh, change. So... You say we don't have to be part of reimagine. Of course, we're going to be part of reimagine if we may. I mean, that's, but that's one of the things we will do. I mean, it's interesting that when I started here seven years ago, we were on the MBA. There were about 30% black Africans in BE terms, 20% women. We're now at 68% black Africans, 42% women. And our executive education is around 80% um, black Africans and 55% women on our programs. Now, on the MBA, these people take the same MBA as the people do internationally. The mm -hmm. lecturers fly in. They take the same exams, taught by the same people on the same syllabus, marked by the same people internationally. 
And it's amazing that I still have to explain to people who are somehow surprised that our South African students do as well, if not better than the French, the Chinese, and the English in blind assessed international exams. Why is that surprising? You know, why is that surprising? I think personally, this is, I, I feel a, an urge to, to push harder almost and more confrontationally about these issues. I don't think it's going to be easy. I think we need to starkly explain the consequences uh-huh. of these issues. Uh-huh. Starkly just take on the fact that uh-huh. for years we have polarized and stigmatized each other in different ways. And that's, um, in Africa, we have all the intelligence, all the talent that we've ever Why would that be surprising? Can we now not move <laughs> into well, a world which is a lot more progressive and intolerant of this colonization that's happened to everybody, actually, as you so eloquently say? But, John, you are in the best position because you've got the data mm. to challenge yeah, those who still say, but... They can't be as good as us. And they don't say it, but it's there still, isn't it? They don't say it. Of course, they don't say yeah. it, but the body language says it, the and in so many other it. subtle ways right. it says it. And I think you also need to co- to challenge corporate South Africa. Yep. How do they explain that despite those numbers that you're telling us mm. about, they still have 70% of the CEOs being white and male. I mean, mm. it, it makes no sense. It makes no business sense because it, if you your customers, uh, 90% of your customers don't look like your CEOs. How do you think you're going to do business mm. in a sustainable way on this continent, right? But we also need strong political leaders who are going to make it unacceptable. Now, you made a point about Soro Maposa being, you know, Madiba was made into a saint in different ways and people bought into it and Ramaphosa isn't. We have an opportunity here, irrespective of our political beliefs or preferences, mm-hmm. to step in behind people who are acting in different ways. We can decide to trust them, we can decide not to trust them. But I would argue there is strong evidence that some of Ramaphosa and the people around him want to make constructive and really good changes. Of course, there will be people who will castigate me for saying that, but I would argue that that's the case. How do we step behind these people who want to make a benign difference? How do we get over ourselves? Well, I don't think we should step behind them <laughs> because the Nugent scenarios taught us that if you walk behind your leaders, they become your bosses. We mm. have to come together as citizens, and this is what the South African Council of Churches is doing, with anchoring democracy on citizens. Mm. So as the politicians in the second half of this year are preparing their campaign manifestos, we, the people, must have our bottom lines, basic norms, standards, and expectations of, if you want my vote, these are the bottom lines, and hold them to it. Hold their feet to that fire, including Mr. Ramaphosa, mm. because he's not alone. If we don't push him as the citizens, his detractors within the party are going to pull him into the gutter. 
So it, the, the, it is really important for South African citizens to get themselves ready, not just who do I vote for, to say, what kind of country do I want to live in? And if so, what will be the distinguishing features of that? This is the exercise we're doing with your students this morning. And what needs to change in me, in my home, in my workplace, in my community, so that the values that we aspire to are the values that are reflected in everything that we do. So if a political party comes to you and says, give us your vote, we say, Thank you. Sit down. Tell me what's your position on this. And don't sell me a story because you want my vote. Because we need to do what the young people do all over the world, including when we were young. Hold your leaders accountable. And today, with uh, information technology, WhatsApp, tag them so that they don't have a manifesto here and then they have policies here and then they behave in a completely different way. You hold their feet to the fire. And I think a person like President Ramaphosa would probably like that because he wants to do the right thing but as I mean I was close enough to Madiba to know the fetters of a political party are quite Mm. strong. Mm. They can pull you in different directions. And I think we cannot afford another five years of failure. Mm-hmm. We need to fix our education system so that every child gets the highest quality of education. Every young person, even those we call the needs, they're not in school, not in education and training, we need to give them a second chance and train them on the job, help them to get their personal lives together. We need to make sure our healthcare system is in better shape. We have the resources, we have the people, but what we need is to get the politicians off their high horses and they must work with civil society and roll out those models of success that are all over. And we need to hold the corporate sector to account. And we say to the politicians, we are going to do our bit, but you must implement those policies that you have. And please, if we can undertake the restructuring of our economy, we will have growth that gets, it's like the Chinese growth Mm. was not driven by, you know, hot money. It was driven by investments they made in agribusiness, in infrastructure, in housing, in education, in everything. We need to do that. We we don't have a public transport system. Look at where the poorest people live. We need to completely restructure our cities. And I think in mayors like Mashaba and and, um, Simang and, and others, there is the appetite to reimagine our cities. So there's a point. Her Mashaba's DA, Silver Imposes yeah. ANC, yeah. but sharing one common mandate. Yes. So beyond party politics yes. comes citizenship. Absolutely. And that's what we need to generate. That's, that's exactly the thing. So let's create citizens together. That's Absolutely. What. I mean, 
I'm on it. I'm in and too. And I will be on it until my maker calls me. <laughs> so that was Dr. Mampella Rampelli, who's had a journey, a, a life, extraordinary life, from activist to doctor to vice-chancellor of the University of Cape Town, where she was a very good vice-chancellor, to managing director of the World Bank, to founding a political party and then withdrawing from that, to now making continuing and increasingly already making a contribution through different means. This is a force, a human force to be reckoned with and one that will never stop. I can see it already. <laughs> a privilege to be spend time with you, Dr. Rampelli Rampelli, and thank you so much for being part of this conversation and allowing us to share your ideas through Henley Intelligence. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Find more Henley Intelligence on our Henley Africa social media platforms.